Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how you doing, man? I have been doing great, and I apologize to everybody now if there is a minor gap when I talk sometimes, because I do have the NFL draft on in the background, so not that it precedes this episode in any way, but I will probably turn my head every once in a while <laughs> to see who picked up who. Yeah, yeah, we were. I was watching that right up to the point that I hit record. We were uh, watching the draft, see who you know got their dreams made of going the big leagues. So it was pretty awesome. And I am nothing but super happy for all the people that that make it. You know, they worked hard. It's it's a huge accomplishment. Big shout out to all of them. I just really hope Cleveland picks uh, picks the right people. I'm just so saying. are you a, are you going to be a Bears fan now? Well, I'm not going to be a Bears fan. I'm just, I didn't dislike the Bears, so this kind of helps me like them more. But yeah, I mean, I really like pro football, but college football is my main I know. So when it comes to pro football, while I'm a Browns fan, I feel comfortable rooting for the Niners or the Cowboys or the Chiefs or the Bears. Whoever's not Tom Brady, that's who I'm rooting for. I'm joking. So (laughs) Here's the real question, Tom. They're holding the draft in Cleveland. Why aren't you there? And this part might catch a boo. I literally didn't know it was in Cleveland till tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so when I started watching the draft, it says from Cleveland. I'm like, Cleveland, you're purposely holding it in Cleveland? Like, did someone lose a bet or I, I couldn't figure out what happened. So, well, last year it was, you know, it was all remote because of COVID-19. So I feel like they probably just had to reset and they're like, well, where's the worst place that we can go after being in Cleveland? Well, I was going to say Pittsburgh if you were picking the worst, but I mean, yeah. Detroit just barely <laughs> fell out of the Detroit, the only place that people in Cleveland look down on. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you YouTube it, there is a Cleveland tourism video. There's two of them and they're both hilarious, but that's actually the catchphrase. in one of them is at least we're not Detroit. I highly recommend people look that up as a matter of fact now. So, but, uh, no, otherwise things are great. Work is super busy. Good problem. Yes. Not a bad problem to have. Definitely. Yeah. The hardest problem is keeping up with the charting. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose right now, but no, realistically, other than that, everything's great here. How are uh, things in your neck of the woods? Very similar, very, very busy, difficult to keep up on the charting. It's kind of like I've said before, and I tell all my students this as well. Charting and family practice is kind of like running on a treadmill. You're never really going to get caught up. You're just hoping not to fall off the end. I mean, and that's pretty much where it is. Like, as long as you're somewhere in the middle, 
You're surviving. Yeah. I want to be caught up, but I'm probably not going to be, at least not in the next 24 hours. So, And then they just turn it up faster if you do catch up. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who rigged this game? That's what I want to know. But uh, no, I'm super excited. We're doing another Back to Basics episode. We're going to be doing some education on hyperlipidemia, which not everybody thinks of as yeah exactly not everybody thinks of as a super exciting topic but it is extremely important it's something that i would say almost all if not all family practice is going to either deal with directly or indirectly and have to treat so while not sexy in the sense of something flashy or fun it is definitely educational it can be very cool to learn about and it is important yes it's not going to be the outlaw of pass but it is definitely something that's vitally important and like you said we all test for it we all treat it so you know it's good to have that back to basics kind of overview understandings those that have been out for a while it's a nice review for those who are just getting out or in school hopefully they'll get something from this episode Speaking of the uh, Diet Love Pass or the Medical Mysteries episode, we have got a, dare I say, tsunami-like wave of good information, feedback, reviews, and people wanting us to do more. So I'm kind of excited at how well the uh, episode went. I am very interested to do some more if you are listening to this and you know of a cool medical mystery that you think would be fun to be reviewed please just uh let us know and we will take a look at it and uh maybe go from there yeah i can tell you you know that we have selected our next medical mystery episode topic gonna be another interesting one that is still unexplained and so hopefully that'll be coming out here in the next few weeks aliens i'm just gonna call it now I'm not saying aliens did it, but aliens did it. Lupus. It's never never lupus. lupus. Yes, house. It's never lupus, except for those times it is. I'm like, the ANA says different. Well, if you want to get hold of us and tell us about a medical mystery that you think we need to cover and put our spin on, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube all at Just Some Podcast website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Hey, don't forget to check out our other shows we have under our nice little umbrella. You got Buried Pleasures with Polly and Amazing. You got Nurse Papa with David. Again, great shows. Give them a listen wherever you're downloading your podcast right now. Tom, I don't know. Let's say beyond giving us topics, what if they wanted to help us out somehow? What what, what could they do? Well, the best thing that they could do is they could go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. And there is an Amazon affiliate link. Click on that before they do any of their shopping and then go to the website, put things in their cart, go about their day. Like we weren't even there and it would really help on the show. And we appreciate it. Like for instance, bamboo hand back scratchers. That is a fantastic thing. Everybody loves and is super useful. And I am using one right now. Or maybe you need a wood beard comb and you, you're, it's, you want to comb that magnificent beard of yours. And you're like, where can I get one of those Amazon? But make sure you go to our website first and click on our link. Absolutely. I mean, it's stylish. It's got great utility. I mean, you could probably use it for other things. Like if something scared you, you could throw that comb at them. 
hit them that, right in the that, face. That, that is true. I mean, and it's you can play a little bit of music with it. I mean, it's yeah. multifunctional. <laughs> multifunctional. That's the important part. We need to get our stamp on this or something, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, Tom, are you ready for a story that you may have missed? Well, if I said no, would that make any difference? Nope. We would still be going there. <laughs> okay. Well, then, yes, I am absolutely ready for this. Okay. Well, Tom, if I told you the phrase M as in Mary, K as in King, so MK4482, what are your thoughts? CIA cover up. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> no, when you said MK, my first thought was MK Ultra, which is a conspiracy. I mean, it was a real program, but it's a conspiracy. It's linked to every conspiracy now. So I can't think of anything else now. So what does what does that mean? Well, MK4482 is currently an oral antiviral that is being tested in clinical trials and is a drug that has been listed to successfully treat SARS-CoV-2 infections in hamsters. Is this by Pfizer? I don't know. It Sorry just talks about the, the science, uh, the scientists that are testing it in human clinical trials. I happen to see today a story about Pfizer is trying to make a pill to help with COVID-19 and symptoms. So that's why I was like, oh, is this? Breaking news. This is apparently Merck and Ridgeback biotherapeutics are the ones who are currently conducting phase two and phase three human clinical trials of MK4482. Like I was saying, it does show the effectiveness in uh, hamsters currently. If the trials can confirm the therapeutic value of MK4482 in humans, it'll be the first drug for uh, SARS-CoV-2 that people can take orally within the community. It does show promise for stopping MERS and SARS in epithelial cells in vitro and in mouse models. And in some cases, it talks about how the, it says in the current studies, researchers tested the effects of MK4482 using three hamster groups, allocating six hamsters to each group. The researchers gave the drug to the first group of hamsters at 12 hours and two hours before infecting them with SARS. The second group received the antiviral 12 hours after infection. And when the trial concluded, researchers found that the animals who had received the drug had 100 times lower levels of infectious SARS-CoV-2 in their lungs than the untreated group. So again, this is currently going into clinical trials. It's a very short uh, story that you may have missed because there's not a lot on it because it's still in trials. But it is showing some potential promise for maybe a light, even a brighter light than the COVID vaccine as far as the light at the end of the tunnel for COVID. So Tom, what are your thoughts? First of all, I'm super happy that we are continuing the good fight against COVID-19, including medications to help. However, I would still tell everyone out there listening that by far the best treatment for COVID-19 is prevention. True. So washing your hands, wearing your mask, getting your vaccine. Those are all things I highly, highly recommend. There is no 5G antenna in it. If there was, my cell phone would not be dropping calls. So the point is, is you're going to hear a lot of bad stuff, but the vaccines aren't aren't out to get you. It's important that we prevent as much spread or people getting COVID-19 as well as trying to treat it afterwards. So that's my take on it. And I will say, you know, you said that the best treatment is currently is prevention. You will notice that Tom did not mention 
ivermectin, plaquenil, or azithromycin as potential best current treatments? Yes, prevention, not the other stuff. Though I do think with resulting pneumonias, there was some studies done on the azithromycin, and the ivermectin, I think, is still being trialed in some other countries to help with there are trial options. Yes. Yeah. Plaquenil. That one. Nope. No good. But like you said, I'm still happy. They're trying to get even more treatment. So good job. Well, let's, uh, what we'll do is we'll take a little break here on the other side of the break. Cause we're going to jump into our back to basics on hyperlipidemia, but let's say, I don't know, you wanted to invest in some crazy company like Merck who's currently doing clinical trials, or maybe you just want to, See where your financial portfolio is. Give Scott a call. Are you lacking financial direction or need a second opinion? If so, MyMP Advisor is a virtual financial planning practice that focuses on working with nurse practitioners, and they've developed a unique process that evaluates five key areas of your financial life. They call it the Check My Vitals procedure, and for $500, it addresses some of your biggest financial concerns, like, am I saving enough to maintain my lifestyle in retirement? Is my family protected from a catastrophe? Do my investments match my tolerance for risk? Listen, if you have more questions than answers, then you're probably due for a checkup. So click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the five benefits of checking your vitals. And if you're ready to move forward, you can even schedule your appointment directly from that link. Yeah, the link is down in the show notes. It's a great place to start. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRC SPIC. Additional advisory services offered through Premier Financial Partners LLC, neither Royal Alliance, MyMP Advisor, Primary Financial Partner, Justin Podcast, or any other guest or affiliate. So, Tom, back to basics hyperlipidemia, that damn difficult disease to treat. And I don't mean difficult as in like we don't have medications for it because. As we'll get into in a little bit, there's... I we mean, got plenty. <laughs> there's an official pant load, I believe, is the uh, official <laughs> measurement of, of medications. But the problem that I have personally, before we start getting into this, and I want your take on this as well, patients don't feel anything. Yeah. And so it's very, very hard to treat, you know, because if they have diabetes or they have hypertension or they have anything else, I don't not anything else, but... Some of your bigger ones that we treat frequently, if your sugar is 500 and we give you insulin and we bring it down to 150, you feel something. If your triglycerides are 3,000 and we bring them down to 1,200, you don't feel any different per se. So that is definitely one of the hardest aspects of hyperlipidemia is dealing with what you just said. It's not tangible. They don't feel it. They don't see the onset. And even once we treat it and things are better, they're like, yay. <laughs> like they, I took a capsule and something happened and now you took blood and now you're telling me it's better, but they don't notice any better. So that is difficult. And as we were just mentioned in the previous story we may have missed, this is also a case where prevention is a much better option than the treatment not that treatment isn't important and not that every type of hyperlipidemia can be avoided but the majority of them can be so this is also one of those times where part of the treatment i know when i go over it with my patients is not talking just about medications it's talking about dietary and lifestyle changes that can also affect treatment you know your enthusiastic yay there when you're talking about you know when we treat it 
kind of reminded me how Browns fans are whenever they announce draft picks for the Browns. There's kind of like, eh, yay, someone else to play for the Browns. Yeah, well, when you realize you're a Browns fan, there's not really any more cheering left. So <laughs> you realize the inevitable torture that you're just going to put yourself through in every football season. Well, Tom, let's kind of break down, you know, because hyperlipidemia is a nice umbrella, kind of a basket term for it. But I mean, there's multiple levels to this. And so let's kind of start getting into some of that. What do you say? I think that's a really good starting point. Let's first look at the one that I think we see most frequently as far as being like elevated. And that would be your triglycerides. Would you concur? I absolutely concur. And it also affects several different things. Like you talked about diabetes earlier. This is one of those factors that if you are dealing with patients that you're afraid of developing diabetes or have diabetes, this is one of those markers you need to keep your eye on. Well, all of them you do, but this one in particular. And I do tell patients that the triglycerides tend to follow sugar. So if their sugars are going to be out of control, their triglycerides are as well. Just for definition purposes, hypertriglyceridemia is going to be anything greater than 150 as part of the lipid profile, which includes the HDL, LDL, total cholesterol, and then the triglycerides, yes. Oh, the thing we were just talking about. Yeah, thanks. Normal, like I said, is less than 150. Moderate is going to be 150 to 885. And anything greater than 885 on your triglycerides is considered to be severe hypotriglyceridemia. That is quite a bit. You Realistically, I always thought in my head the marker I set was 500. You hit the 500 mark, you're up there. And I know that may not be the official, but as with just about everything else we're going to talk about in this episode. A lot of it is going to be subjective. It's going to be how the clinician is viewing it and dealing with that patient and that patient's situation. Yes. I think you can think of cholesterol as the um, correlate clinically disease. What do you think? I think that's the <laughs> best way to put it. <laughs> and so some of the, with the triglycerides or even with the cholesterols in general what I tell patients is it's going to be about 50% genetics, 50% dietary. So I have patients, as a matter of fact, I have uh, at least a few patients I know of that have cut out as much of their diet unhealthy-wise that they can. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're exercising. I mean, everything, and their cholesterol and their triglycerides are still a little bit elevated. And I'm like, it's bad DNA. I mean, I, I, it is what it is. There is a genetic component, okay? However, for the majority of our patients, commonly associated with hyperlipidemia is going to be high-fat diets, sedentary yes. lifestyle, obesity, and diabetes, okay? Again, it's one of those, I can't make you feel the cholesterol in your blood, but I'm pretty sure, like I said, for the vast majority of our patients, I can point to something and say, this, this represents the condition that you are having. Yeah. And I will tell you, you know, you said you can't see the cholesterol or triglycerides or, you know, which is very, very true in my office now, because we're a satellite clinic, we draw our own lab samples and I guarantee you in blood, you can see oh. <laughs> high cholesterol. Like when you spin it out and there is, you know, the red cells, the plasma, and then this nice kind of, well, it looks like bacon grease. I mean, uh, <laughs> 
for, for lack of a better term. And it's like, oh, that clutch draw is not going to be good at all. Well, and for lack of a better term, that's what it is. It is bacon grease. It's our fat. It's just not, you know, the fat from bacon. But that is, in fact, what we're dealing with when we're dealing with these conditions. So here is something that we talked about clinical correlation. When do you break it down for your patients as this is where you're at, this is where you need to be, and when do you start treatment? Um, And again, that will correlate clinically. If they're diabetic, I'm not going to be overly aggressive with the triglycerides if their diabetes is out of control as well, just because I know that if I can get their sugars under better control, that triglycerides are going to come down as well. But yeah, I mean, if you're starting to get 250s or higher for me personally, we're going to start having some conversations. And I think we'll kind of get into the conversations we have in general here in just a little bit. Where are you at as far as like for your, just your triglycerides? So when it comes to, see, I take a, a slightly different approach is when I do have a patient that's like for say diabetic and their triglycerides are out of control, I tend to clamp down harder because I'm like, hey, this is a direct reflection. You need to be avoiding sugars and carbohydrates. I can tell you right now, I'm looking at it. <laughs> They're elevated. If we can get the triglycerides under control, that's going to help with sugar control. Personally, when I'm talking to a patient, again, every situation being different, assuming they're non-diabetic, 150 is obviously the range. To 250, I generally am very talk to my patient, talk about diet and lifestyle modifications, and I'm not big to push medications. After 250, I start going, hey, you either need to get serious or we need to talk about medications. But honestly, over 350 is when I start going, and again, I always tell my patients, it's your body. You know, I'm not going to make you do anything with it unless you're a threat to yourself or others. But that's when the conversations tend to get less. Hey, try not to have a donut tomorrow to, hey, do you like arteries? <laughs> because if you like to keep arteries? them. Yes, I love that. Yeah, exactly. You know, but that's generally the levels. And again, it's, it's also dependent on the patient and how receptive they are. Because some people, they didn't realize. They're like, yeah. Oh my God, I didn't know. You tell them you retest in a couple months and guess what? They're doing much better or you can at least see the improvement. You know, they're going, Hey, I started checking my blood pressure every day. I started going to the gym. I tend to give them a lot more slack. It's the people that are not making any effort or with effort, they're not making much headway that I tend to go, okay, I think we need to address this medically. And I do try to provide the education to patients as far as the dietary modifications, kind of like your, you know, your dietary activity modifications. And most of them, I'll kind of give them the opportunity mm -hmm. to self-correct by making better choices because a lot of them don't want to be on medication. And I get that. But, and I guess we didn't really put this in the beginning and maybe we should have. Why do we treat cholesterol, Tom? Because they told me to. Well, yes, but beyond that, you know, we're trying to prevent. Oh, like, yeah, like heart attacks. Yeah, like heart attacks, diabetes, strokes. Yeah, the whole do you like your veins and arteries because <laughs> you're clogging them? Trying to avoid stuff like that. And that is one of the things that whenever I'm talking to patients about their cholesterol, that is, is that's what I'm like, because patients freak out about heart attacks. And I'm not saying they shouldn't because they're bad. But is that going to be an episode? It should be. Heart attacks are bad. The end. Play the music. That's where their mind goes when they think cholesterol is heart attacks. And it, but it is more than that. And I think when you start opening up that knowledge base to say, no, 
while heart attacks are, are what we're concerned about too, there's other things such as, you know, do you like the left side of your body and do you want to continue to use it appropriately? And when you start talking about strokes and they're like, oh, because people know what a stroke is and they realize that it may not kill them, but it is going to potentially be very debilitating. Whereas a heart attack isn't always as debilitating as, say, a stroke. Yeah, it always seems like they had one person like, well, my granddad had a heart attack, you know, and he lived another 30 years. So I'm like, oh, not that I'm not happy for granddad. It seems to set back the realistic expectations the patient should be having is because your grandfather did well does not mean that you will. And having that conversation about triglycerides and cholesterol with a patient, sometimes you need that reinforcement. And just like you said, heart attacks aren't always as debilitating as something like a stroke. That is something also, though, I point out, like you said, with strokes, I go, you know, if you have one, imagine having someone have to spoon feed you or dress you the rest of your life. And that's something that most people can imagine. They put their own pants on having to imagine someone else doing it for them kind of sells that or brings that home for them a little bit. As far as treatment options for triglycerides, your big go-to is you're going to be your fibrates. Yeah. Two available in the United States currently. And I use both of them. I probably use the gym fibers all more than I use the fem fibrate, but really, yeah, I think it's just a, a mental thing. I don't know. I just, it's, that's what I just think of first, I guess. Okay. However, evidence shows that the phenofibrate is considered to be a safer drug than the gemfibrazole with fewer interactions. And it's also easier for compliance due to it just being a once daily versus the gemfibrazole, which is 600 milligrams twice a day. Uh, the phenofibrate is 145 milligrams daily. And I wish I could say all the cool stuff like, no, I read all the safety inspection stuff and that's why I picked it. But to be completely fair, a big factor for me is patient compliance. It doesn't do me any good to prescribe them medications they don't take. Right. So the f the chance of them taking phenofibrate once a day is a much greater than with the other. But uh, yeah, I'm a big person on the phenofibrate starting off with if needed. And we are going to talk about statins more in depth, obviously, with the cholesterol portion of this. But there are with the higher dosages of the statins, you will get a lowering of the triglycerides as well. So you can't rule them out. It's just that's not my go-to for my right. first-line treatment if it's purely just triglycerides that I'm attacking. And because patients will ask you, there are some potential natural things that they can do to try to help other than dietary modifications. One of those is fish oil, which can help potentially reduce triglycerides. However, it can potentially interact with some of your blood thinners, so be mindful of that. But it's basically the omega-3 fatty acid in the fish oil is what can help lower triglycerides. So that is one option that they can get over the counter. That's a good option. Niacin is something that is also not a traditional. It's not a fibrate. It's not a statin. However, not all niacin is the same. So prescription niacin is not going to be directly the same as over-the-counter niacin. And there have been, and I'm getting this from both the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Family Physicians websites, that there have been issues with people taking large doses of over-the-counter niacin because it's not the same and having not just bad reactions, but also having to be seen by medical staff. There's good and there's bad with everything. Just 
be wary if your patients talk about niacin that you educate them about the correct dosages and routes to be taking that as well as the fact that niacin while works well traditionally has some side effects when it gets into the larger doses such as skin flushing and lots of itching and so maybe the patient doesn't want to take a fibrate they don't want to take a statin but they're probably not going to tolerate niacin very well so that's that's just part of making sure that conversation like well you can try it but i have a feeling you're going to be taking some fenovibrate here shortly yeah anything else that we kind of didn't hit on as far as like the uh, triglycerides before we examine the rest and and i know you kind of talked about earlier but the big thing especially when you're educating your patients i am a big person on reminding them that triglycerides are your carbohydrates and your sugars so really watch that and you can really reduce your triglyceride levels through diet if you're just willing to cut out those carbohydrates. So it just seems to work well for most of my patients. So you want to move on to the rest of it? So let's do I move on from triglycerides <laughs> to was that too sarcastic? Tom, what are some of the differences between so you have your total cholesterol, you have your HDL and your LDL. Correct. Can you give a quick review of what kind of breakdown of those are or what the the difference between them are, I guess? Well, I mean, some of it is in the name itself. So cholesterol or total cholesterol, obviously, that's going to make a lot of sense here in a second. The two main things to factor when you're treating cholesterol or when you're looking at your lipid panel is you're going to be seeing your LDL and your HDL. Okay, so the LDL is the one that we are trying to avoid. The LDL is the cholesterol that is going to cause the major issues such as the MIs, the strokes. It's the one that everyone worries about. When they think of cholesterol, this is the bad one. Yeah. There's plenty of journal literature and studies that show a direct correlation between high LDL scores and factors and those conditions we were just talking about. On the flip side is the big brother of LDL, HDL. HDL is a good cholesterol, and we actually want that not so much high, but we want to make sure that it is in its normal range. There is a proportion as LDL goes up, HDL tends to go down, which is not helpful to us in any way, because like I said before, we want that HDL up. So in treating LDL, we can actually help the HDL go up, which is something that's very helpful to us. Did that make sense or did I miss the mark? No, I think it made sense. <laughs> well, thank you. Because I was like, um, I hope he's not like, what's the chemical structure of LDL? I'm going to be like, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's the not? ones. Oh, you it's think I have one. the internet in front of me. And so. the way that I, you know, and I'm sure that everybody probably knows this, but just, you know, the way I break it down to patients as far as that goes is the LDL is the one that we want low, hence the L. The HDL is the one that we want higher, which is the H. So it's an easy way for them to remember which way that we want those numbers to, to be And looking at kind of the rationale for lowering LDL found this kind of interesting. There's a 2016 meta analysis evaluated outcomes in over 300,000 individuals at a broad range of risk in 49 trials. Mean baseline LDL was 122 milligrams per deciliter. And the following was found the relative risk for the endpoint of major vascular events per 38.7 milligram per deciliter reduction in LDL was 0.77 for statins and 0.75 for non-statins. And among primary prevention trials, uh, the post 
post-treatment LDL was positively correlated with CVD events, meaning that the lower post-treatment LDLs were correlated with lower event rates and higher post-treatment LDL levels were, were correlated with higher event rates. So basically, they're saying that lowering the LDL with statin therapy for primary prevention is effective at reducing those cardiovascular events, such as cardiovascular death, acute coronary syndrome, coronary revascularization, or the strokes, and then also myocardial infarctions over a wide range of baseline LDLs and lipid profiles produces a similar relative risk reduction to statin therapy and secondary prevention, but a lower absolute reduction. So that's kind of the rationale behind why we want to treat that because all that big, long medical jargon to say that treating it helps to decrease the cardio events that we were talking about. And I'm a big person on representation when I'm in my office. So I just, I point to a sink because every office and just about every room has a sink. I like, you like the pipes? You don't put bacon grease down them and not expect it to get clogged, right? And they're like, well, of course. I'm like, well, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to remove that obstruction from the pipe, just like your arteries. And that tends to, or shouldn't say arteries, your veins, arteries, everything, tends to sell it to them pretty well. It gives them a, a mental, because like you said, they're not going to feel it. So I got to get them to understand it in some sort of way. So how do you treat it, Tom? Well, me personally, again, I think it's time to talk about levels again, because just like with the triglycerides, there's there's ranges. So for your total cholesterol, you want less than 200. The borderline is defined as 240 or below high is above that, obviously. For the LDL specifically, because the total cholesterol is going to be the score of the HDL and LDL. Really what you're wanting to look for is below 160 for your LDL. So realistically, again, it comes back to where are we at? If their LDL is normal and their total cholesterol is 240, I tend to go with, hey, if you don't want to be on medications, you got to start losing weight. You got to start exercising. You got to start removing fried and fatty foods from your diet, etc. If the patient and I have actually had patients that are like, I know myself, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to do that. We're going to need to go on medications. And I, I, I respect that. So I'm yeah. like, okay, here we go. So if they're either at a level where based on their condition and other factors, they need to be treated or they're just like, nope, just put me on medications. The go-to starting point is statins. And I say statin because there's a bunch of medications and they all end in statin almost like it's a group of statins i don't know yeah, yeah. it's almost like the people that name medications plan this ahead so <laughs> so with the stats again there, there's a bunch of them i'm sure everybody's got some of their go-to lovastatins simvastatin pravastatin let's say what yeah. let's say see i and my first usually starting point is a torvastatin and there isn't any specific reason other than when I was going through training to become a nurse practitioner, that was the most commonly one used. So hence, that's the most common one for me to go forward. Now, I am not against evidence-based practice. If somebody says, hey, pravastatin is 10 times better in this, 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 and this, guess what? I'm going to start prescribing pravastatin. Right. But the point realistically should be is not so much what specific one, it's just that you are getting them on one. And some of that is also going to be dependent upon the ranges, like you said. If what they consider to be moderate intensity statin therapy would be like, say, lovastatin 40 to 80, or if you use a dorvastatin 
it would be like a 10 to 20 milligrams a day. High intensity statin therapy, you're going to bump it up a little bit and like your torvastatin is going to go from 10 to 20, it's going to go to 40 to 80. The decisions made to treat with statins to achieve the 20 to 30% reduction in coronary heart disease events, seen in most clinical trials. So you want to treat them with those dosages. It does say that they suggest starting treatment with a moderate dose of a statin, such as 20 milligrams of a torvastatin, but it is reasonable to start with high-intensity statin therapy for patients assessed to be at a particularly high risk, uh, such as those with a 10-year risk or of 20% or higher. One of the problems with statins in the training and in research, and I have not had this as much in practice, so that's why I, I want to talk to you about it, is statins have got a pretty bad rep for side effects. Yes, they do. Now, in reading about this, and again, I'm using websites like the American Academy of Family Physicians in particular for this one, um, statins have an excellent safety and side effect profile. The most common adverse effects from statin medications are GI disturbances, headaches, myalgias, and rash. By far the largest percentage of side effects in personal experience with this are people reporting body aches. Yeah. That seems to be a very common one. Even though the science shows again and again and again, uh, as a matter of fact, there's two studies listed in both the AHA and the AFP about uh, symphysatin and pravastatin studies where the control group and the people taking it had the exact same amount. So there was no, they're like, the statins don't seem to be causing anything extra that people aren't already ex experiencing. But whether it's in their head or whether it's not, the general findings in all these studies are that the majority of patients within one year are going to quit taking medications from either true side effects or perceived side effects. And one of the things, and I guess I didn't mention this, and I need to get better about this even with my own patients, and so I'm going to take responsibility for this as well. You know, we keep talking about like starting the statins and lowering the risk and lowering the risk. Well, what risk are we talking about? So there's a website that you can use called CV Risk calculator.com and we can throw that link down in the show notes and it calculates your 10 year, 10 year risk of heart disease or stroke using the algorithm that come out through the ACC and AHA. And so you plug in the patient's information as far as like their age, their gender, race, their cholesterol, blood pressures. If you're treating them for blood pressure, diabetes, and they're a smoker, then it, you can calculate the risk uh, of having a cardiac event over the next 10 years. And so that is what the American uh, Family Physicians Group uses as far as the threshold for uh, starting statin therapy, as far as for the lowering the LDL. And their recommendation is to initiate therapy if one or more risk factors and the 10-year risk is greater than 10%. And you need to consider therapy if one or more risk factors are met and then a ten year and then the ten year risk is less than ten percent. So the majority of patients, if they're gonna have any of those risk factors or are gonna be at a higher risk for potential cardiac events, you're probably going to need to have that discussion about starting a statin to lower the LDL. Well, you know, one of the interesting things looking at that calculator, because I pulled it up real quick while you were talking, is it doesn't take into account LDL directly. It takes in the total and HDL cholesterol. So we've been talking this whole time. What's the biggest risk factor for an MI event? LDL. What's the one thing the calculator doesn't take into specific LDL? So I, I just thought that was really interesting just looking at it right there. I, I think... I kind of skipped over it, so it, it's going to be important for a second just to kind of understand what 
the two different cholesterols are doing. Okay, so we know what we want from them in levels, but the HDL, the purpose of the HDL and maybe why it's important to this calculator is because what it does is it absorbs cholesterol and then takes it back to your liver and your liver is then able to flush it out of your body. So that's why it's important to have normal levels of the HDL because it's helping clean up versus the LDL. What it's basically going to do is it's going to go and stick to the walls of your arteries, creating plaques, which is then what causes the strokes and the heart attack. So I kind of skipped over that earlier. I'm sorry, Ben. Just thought maybe we should clear that up a little bit. And when I mentioned risk factors earlier, current guidelines for treatment are uh, any individual with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, individual with primary elevations of LDL greater than 190, any individual between the ages of 40 to 75, that their LDL is between 70 and 189 without cardiovascular disease. Those are the current recommendations as far as, again, initializing statin therapy. So honestly, Tom, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not great about statin therapy with my patients and Again, I'm going to take responsibility for that because I'm just, I'm not. And if you look at some of the, the risk factors and you look at the guidelines, I mean, the vast majority of patients, honestly, should probably be on a statin at, at some point. In the year. Yeah. And just as you said, I'm not great about statins. I, I'm just not for a variety of reasons. One, because I like to try and keep my patients off medications as much as possible. Not that they don't need statins and not that they don't need cholesterol therapy. That's not what I'm saying at all. But as I was just talking about, there's usually side effects, whether they're real or not. You know, if the patient believes they are, then they're there. Okay. Yep. So, so I have medications going into them that may be causing adverse effects that they don't want to take. If they're not going to take, it's not going to affect it. So especially with statins, if it's feasible, I try and focus on the prevention, the diet, the lifestyle, because hopefully I can make some headway there without putting them on a medication that then they are going to reject and not use anyways. So I, I too need to become much better at statin therapy, but I still hope that when I talk to my patients, I can make the point and impact on diet and lifestyle and exercise to help control it over the medications. And I just want to touch briefly on the, and I don't know if you've had much experience with this. Uh, we've had drug reps come in and talk about it. The PCSK9 inhibitors, the proprotein convertase subtilsilin, the PS. Yeah, I'm going to let you handle this part. <laughs> the PCSK9 inhibitor. We're just going to call it that. Yeah, just leave it at that. And that's going to be that, like, Rapatha is the big one that yes. it, you see that's out. And this is, I mean, it, it's it, it's got a really good profile, but it's also going to be one that not everybody is going to use for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I think the, probably the biggest reason that it's used is for the familial hypercholesterol. So basically those patients who are doing everything that they need to be doing and the genetics are still bad and they're, they're you know, so... They're just yeah. not making progress. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And and I have said multiple times, you know, diet, exercise, lose weight, blah, blah, blah. But that's like you just said, that's not going to work for everybody. There is a genetic component for some types of hyperlipidemia. So in those cases, yeah, drugs like uh, Rapatha and do you know the other one off the top of your head? I don't know the other one off the top of my head. Rapatha is one that come to mind. Praluent. Well, either way, 
no, I don't have. Um, this is one of the topics I don't mind talking about and saying this exists. It's got uh, a lot of evidence show that it is powerful drug for lowering LDL cholesterol. There does some seem to be some incidental lowering of triglycerides, but that is not a recommendation for use of this medication for a couple reasons. I'm not super familiar with it. So talking about prescribing, it's not something I'm really willing to do because I don't have much experience with it myself. The biggest reason is a, most of my patients I'm dealing with, I have not had familial cholesterol being the problem. And the other is cost. It is a new couple new medications and cost is prohibitive for some of my patient pool. Yeah. While I have nothing against either of these drugs, I just have not found it to be a tool I've used many times in my practice. And honestly, I I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I don't know. But if we were to the point where we're looking at Rapatha or something along those lines, cardiology is probably going to be involved. And the biggest takeaway from like the Rapatha and, and the medications like this and the reason that I, I think it's going to be a very small subset of the population that would be either eligible to take them or willing to take them is because it's an injectable. So that is, you know, I have patients who I can't get them to take insulin with a blood sugar of 400, and I know it's going to make them feel better. And so then you have, and it's nothing on the reps by any means. I mean, it, and that's why I think it, this is going to be something more, we're going to have a cardiology consult involved because again, I can't take get them to take insulin injectable. I'm, Sure, I'm not going to be able to talk them into taking an injectable medication that doesn't change the way they feel. Yeah, um, and that's why I think it's going to be someone who, like I said, is already plugged into cardiology, and someone who is already willing to cut their diet down to the extreme. Doing everything they're supposed to be doing is still not getting there. Those are the patients that are probably going to be potential candidates for something like a PCSK9 inhibitor. Getting back to just statins and and cholesterols and stuff in general, current recommendations, Tom, are that the cholesterol should be measured uh, six to eight weeks after initializing a statin therapy. And uh, once it's been, once the appropriate level of reduction has been obtained, then the test can be repeated every 12 months thereafter or if the clinical situation dictates. That is a really good point to bring up. And far too often, especially in the beginning, and I am probably as guilty as anybody I am talking to at this point in time, but we have got to make sure when you provide a medication for treatment that you probably need to follow up and make sure it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing, especially with patients with multiple medications. I know it's easy to, hey, I'm going to start you on something. And sometimes, especially a statin medication can get lost in the sauce and maybe appropriate testing isn't being followed up on. So that does happen, but it is important, like Ben said, every six to eight weeks in the beginning while you're titrating the drug and then 12 months when you get to a therapeutic level. But I think that's one of those questions or things people, especially in the beginning, they're so wrapped up in trying to figure out what medication to put them on that they may not always know the appropriate time frame or even to follow up immediately on it. So that's a right. good one for, for the new practitioners out there. Well, the other reason that I bring that up is because I wanted to, I wanted to segue into this comment from the American Family Physician in their um, what they call poems, which is patient-oriented evidence that matters. 
in the June 2019 issue, which is the overview of the new ACC AHA lipid guidelines. <laughs> the clinical question that was posed was, what do cardiologists recommend for the management of hyperlipidemia? And here's the bottom line, according to the American Family Physician Group. Uh, these updated guidelines are made without any input from primary care physicians who manage most patients with hyperlipidemia and are, are more complex than the 2013 guidelines and will likely lead to even more recommendations for statins, Zedia, and PSK9 inhibitors rather than a fire-and-forget strategy um, involving a risk-based prescription for a moderate to high-level statin. We are supposed to go back to the monitoring LDL levels and targeting a percentage reduction in LDL cholesterol and in very high-risk patients targeting an LDL level of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter um, is their bottom line of so that, and we're seeing that with some of the guidelines now of, you know, don't just put them on a statin and leave them there, but you're going back to kind of reassess that. And I kind of, I'm, and I talked to you a little bit about this before we hit the record button. It almost kind of sounded like a little, little shot from uh, the uh, AAFP there to, <laughs> to cardiology, well, in my humble opinion. No, I'm pretty sure the guy who wrote that was like cussing under his breath while he was typing it. Like, then sons of bitches, I'll tell them what they're going to do. Like, I could just imagine some mad guy in the middle of the night typing. It's just kind of funny to me. But I don't just think it's funny because it is amusing to think about. <laughs> and I think it's important, though. I think they're right. I would assume that family practice is handling the majority of identification of hyperlipidemia and treatment options. And cardiology coming in and dictating what's going to happen is inevitably going to paint them into a corner where we then have to refer them to them for treatment. And I don't, I think that's a lose-lose situation for both the healthcare systems and the patients. And in case you were curious of whether that was a shot at cardiology, you're scrolling down through... Quote, it is also worth noting which organizations were not among the 12 that endorsed this guideline. The American Academy of Family Physicians and the American College of Physicians. This is reminiscent of the recent aggressive hypertension guidelines from the ACC AHA that the AAFP and ACP also did not participate in or endorse. Maybe a, a slight shot at, not necessarily cardiology, but maybe more at the uh, AHA and ACC. <laughs> And for those out there wondering, I'm not mad at any cardiologist, but I think this is more of the large scale macro political things that can happen within even the healthcare systems. And cardiology doesn't want to appear to give up some of their ground, maybe. I don't know. That's some speculation on my side. I don't even know if it's that or if it's, like you said, family practice is going to be where the vast majority of these cases are going to be handled you know we're going to be kind of be the the infantry so to speak of of the daily use you know and your cardiology are going to be your green berets and you're not kicking everything out to the green berets but yet the green berets are the ones who are writing the policy that affects the infantry and infantry is like but we didn't even like we didn't get a vote <laughs> you know and yeah, it's like exactly yeah we are going to be expected to handle something that we didn't help craft and with anything else in life that generally ends up poorly eventually you know what it just reminded me of and again no offense to anybody at the aha acc anywhere else it's kind of like politicians tom like you've talked about you know there are politicians who are writing policies that don't work in the day-to-day -day yeah. process of that 
Yes, I have big problems when politicians start talking about science or enacting new laws of involving healthcare, but they don't actually have any science background or experience with healthcare. It never is going to go very well at all. I thought you were going to say another example of this is how poorly the Cowboys seem to be doing in this draft. I think we did quite and, well, thank you. <laughs> just so far, <laughs> round one, I think we're, we our linebacker core has been decimated, and we've uh, oh, that's not a joke. That's I just did the little Catholic cross no, my chest no. when talking about his linebacking core. Micah Parsons is going to be you know a new Dallas Cowboy middle linebacker to be good, but <laughs> Tom, getting away from Cowboys football, and it's really hard for me to do that. But you know. <laughs> If there are other topics out there as far as back to basics that you want us to cover, let us know. You know, we've hit hypertension. We've hit hyperlipidemia. Obviously, we're not going to be able to give you everything that you need in an hour, but hopefully there's some good jumping off points to where you can go to find information or at least start to treat your patients uh, and go from there. So if there's other topics that you want us to cover that you see a lot in the office, let us know. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast, website, www.just... Ooh, words are hard, and so is our website, apparently. <laughs> www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. So, Tom, we got the uh, another Back to Basics out of the way, so that was good. And we got our new our next topic for our Medical Mysteries episode coming up as well. So, it's going to be some good stuff on the way. It is. I am, as always, excited to get these episodes out and see how people react. And I am really excited about our uh, medical mysteries that we're starting to pick up and do. And if it keeps doing this well, hopefully it becomes a more regular part of the show. Yeah, I think it would be, would be great. And with the draft, maybe we can like, reach out to uh, our sports medicine guy and see if we can get him on the show. And I know that uh, John Canyon, you know, he was on talked about RVUs and stuff. He reached out and wants to come back on multitude of potential guests coming up as well so always some good stuff coming up on the old JSP but we're going to let you guys get out of here because you got to go to work Tiffany Tiffany <laughs> you got to go to work we know that wear your mask wash your damn hands have a great week hey everybody make sure you stay safe out there Cowboy, swearing just to pass the time I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known Took a press so I could find my cheek Find mediocrity's the best that I could do Thank you.